Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Hold the Line is committed to helping you train your dog to an advanced level using motivational methods and without the use of fear or pain. Thank you for tuning in and please make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Hold the Line! Folks, this episode has been uploaded ahead of time to be beamed out to the world on Friday the 30th of August, which is Moy's due date. So please keep your fingers crossed that all is going well for us. If you want to see how things are progressing, take a look at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com, obviously, forward slash Galady, G-A-L-O-D-Y. And it's called Galady Gundogs. So you can check in with how things are going there. Be warned that podcast episodes might be slightly sporadic over the next eight weeks whilst we hopefully raise the puppies. Arranging and planning ahead to do podcast interviews is going to be difficult and my brain really isn't going to be in podcast land. So it might be a great opportunity to look back and find episodes that you haven't had a chance to listen to yet and to do some catching up on Hold the Line. Everything will get back to normal again later in the year. Anyway, let's go on to this week's episode. Hold the Line. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Anne Taguchi. Anne is based in LA and she competes in US field trials with her Weimaraners. Anne got her first Weimaraner Riley in 2000 as a hunting dog. She entered a field trial on a whim and got bitten by the bug. Riley became a dual champion, which was a remarkable achievement for Anne's first ever Weimaraner. After 10 years in the breed and a few vimes later, Anne partnered with Steve Reynolds of Snake Breaks Kennels and spent four years learning the ins and outs of professional field trial training and campaigning. Not only did she see many of these dogs in training and competition, she also lived with them and hunted over quite a few. Through Steve, she was also under the tutelage of Virginia Alexander of Right Around Kennels. We talk quite a bit in this episode about Otto, who is one of Anne's current dogs. Otto is national field champion, field champion, amateur field champion, touchstones, AC, nothing personal. Otto ended up number one all-age gun dog Weimaraner for 2018 with the Weimaraner Club of America. 2018 was a great year for him, as it was also when he won the Weimaraner Club of America's National Grand Championship. Anne's website is touchstoneweimaraners.com, and you can check out more about her dogs there. Anne's also behind a great popular website about Weimaraners called Just Weimaraners, which is at justweimaraners.com. It's a really useful resource for the new Weimaraner owner. Anne was also a founding member of the Hunting Weimaraner Alliance, which is a group of US-based Weimaraner breeders who came together to preserve and protect the hunting ability of the breed, which is under considerable threat. Anne is not a force-free trainer, but I did want to talk to her at length about the early training that she does with puppies and young dogs, which is based on the positive reinforcement that comes from bird contact and from allowing the bird to be a reinforcer for the dog and to teach the dog. Vine runners were my first love, so I've kind of known Anne online and via various forums and groups for a while. And it's really good to finally chat with her in person. So let's get on to the interview. Hold the line. So, hello, Anne, and welcome to Hold the Line, and thanks so much for coming on the show. And I feel like I kind of know you a little bit, although I've never actually spoken to you or met you, but I feel like I know you because we've had various interactions online in in different ways over the years. Um, So it's really good to get a chance to speak to you, finally, in person. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it is very nice to hear your voice in person. <laughs> Plenty more of that on other podcast episodes if you want to hear my voice some more. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of want to start at the very beginning, really, because I'm going to assume that most people listening don't know who you are and don't know anything about you. Um, so, am I right that you're based near LA? Is that right? That is, yes, that is correct. I do live in Los Angeles. Okay. Do you live like in the city itself or outside or? 
Um, I'm in a suburb, but LA is basically an urban sprawl. So um, it is quite urban where I live. Right. So, and, and you breed and you trial Weimar runners. Correct. Okay. 20 years um, now. 20 years. Wow. Um, so I haven't said anything wrong so far, so that's quite good. Although I haven't said very much. Um, <laughs> so the first thing I wanted to ask you about is your routine, because I kind of have this impression of you as having this very sort of um, glamorous lifestyle in terms of uh, at certain times of the year, you'll be off um, getting the dogs ready for competition in different parts of the US. Is that right? And you'll be yes. doing various things with them, conditioning them and that kind of thing. And then other times you'll actually be driving about everywhere, entering trials. And then there must be some time when you're at home, presumably. So let's just talk a bit about your your kind of yearly annual routine, as it were, what how, what okay. that looks like for you. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's not glamorous at all. Um, <laughs> so I, I am home right now because it's summer and summer is actually uh, pretty much downtime due to the weather. Um, it's quite warm here. Um, and where I train, we have a lot of snakes. So uh, right now I'm actually showing my dogs, right. which is which is not my primary interest. Uh, field is my primary interest. Um, so in the summer, you know, uh, depending on what kind of dogs I have, um, where they are in their training, I I may be doing some conditioning or I may be just, you know, they may have downtime, which is where I am with my current dogs right now. They are actually um, just kind of hanging out doing other things. Um, so we get started with our field trialing typically in the fall when the weather cools. Um, and that is when I'll start. I basically start with conditioning them to get them ready for any kind of competition. So maybe September, October, I'll, I will start working on their conditioning. Um, our field trials are typically 30 minutes. So I'm trying to get them running to up to an hour um, to get them prepared for that. Um, so our trial season usually runs from about October through maybe April, May. Um, and that it will depend on where we are in the country. Um, you know, it's weather dependent. So there are trials in other areas in the country further into the uh, end of spring, beginning of summer. Um, and I will sometimes travel to those. But uh, typically locally here in California, we are we're trialing from about October to March. Right. Right. During hunting season, actually. Right. Yeah. And you kind of slipped in there that your dogs are sort of conditioned to run for an hour. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Um, sure. So like I said, uh, most of our stakes, our competitions are 30-minute heats. Um, however, when we go to, for example, our Weimar Internationals, um, those are one-hour competitions. And the dog needs to be in condition and pretty much running the whole time. We can't have a dog that peters out at the end. So conditioning is a is a big part of what we do to get our dogs ready for competition besides, you know, the actual bird work and the hunting portion. Um because right. I've seen I've seen on your Facebook page shots of them sort of running alongside quad bikes, is that? Yes. Part yes. of it. Yeah. Yes, that is part of it. So I am very fortunate that I have access to um some very nice training grounds where there are very few people, very few cars, you know, acres and acres of land. I have to drive to get there because I am in Los Angeles. So I drive about mm, an hour and a half to get out there. I have a quad, which is kind of like a motorcycle with four tires, I guess. Mm -hmm. is how we call them four wheelers. Um, and so I I just loose, loose leash run them. Um, they go for an hour. They're going probably about 20 to 25 miles an hour. Wow. Um, which is, it's quite fast. Like they can't sustain that pace the whole time. Um, but we're doing kind of what people do, you know, we're going up and down hills We're you know, we're trying to condition them for different types of terrain. So they actually do get quite a workout. Um, and that's a very conditioned dog. Um, when we first start, they may only be able to do about 10, 15 minutes. So getting up to an hour takes, I'd say, a couple months to get them there. Right. And and so they're connected to your quad bike, presumably, otherwise they go off hunting and uh, no, so there's a line no. or something, or they're free running next to um, you. I actually, I free run them. However, my quad does have um, a contraption 
where they are connected to the bike. So they wear a harness and they are connected to the bike and they are pulling. The good dogs pull, let me put it that way. Um, right. Yeah. So they're getting aerobic and anaerobic exercise by doing it that way. I use the hills when I'm free running them so they get some anaerobic exercise. Um, but if there are any dangers around or, you know, there's too many other dogs, whatever, um, I will hook them up to the quad. But usually I don't have to do that. Right. And so do you do that? How many times a week do you do that? Um, about three times a week. Okay. So you're not kind of staying out there for an extended amount of time, sort of driving out there each day, you need to do this and then coming back to your home no. again? Yeah, no, they they need a rest day in between. And I also I also work, so <laughs> I can't be all out right. there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. So and what sort of what year what time of year would you be doing that? That sort of um, I would be starting right before our trial season. So for me, that would be about September and the weather will start cooling here as well. Um, so September is when I, I start up again. I'll start them slowly and work up to the hour. Right. So tell us a little bit more about trialing and how, how that works over there. Do you have one of these big sort of dog trailers and each dog has a little kind of kennel in the dog trailer on the back of your I do. I do not. (laughs) (laughs) I do not. I am an amateur. So um, a proud amateur, actually. So um, the way we're set up is we have professional trainers and handlers um, and they enter what we call open stakes. So those stakes are open for professionals and amateurs. Um, And then they also have amateur stakes where it's restricted to amateurs only. I am an amateur, so I do not take any kind of compensation from people. I run my own dogs. I train my own dogs, um, which, you know, to each their own. There's a lot of good to be said about sending a dog to a professional. They do get things done more quickly, usually. Um, But I enjoy training the dogs. I enjoy the relationship I have with my dogs. And um, so I have a regular car, have my crates in the car. I don't have a big (laughs) truck. I don't have a big trailer. I don't show up with 20 dogs. Um, But you know, there are people that send their dogs to a professional trainer and they have big rigs with the horses and the dog boxes, you know, they're carrying maybe 20 dogs and they're going from trial to trial. Um, it's just a different sort of thing, but we're all competing in the same place. (laughs) And we missed out the horse side of things. So your conditioning that you're doing with the dogs running alongside your quad bikes, is that preparation for running them off horseback for your trials? I mostly participate in horseback trials. So yes, um, it does help for any other type of competition because we do have walking field trials. We also have what are called hunt tests. Those are not competition based. Um, you're judged against the standard. It's pass fail. So, um, you know, it's, it's probably much more realistic to real hunting. Um, however, the dogs still need to be in condition. They still can't be petering out or, you know, anything like that. So, it's useful for everything I do um, in terms of the dogs and even, you know, even keeping them calm in the house and well-behaved, it helps. Right. Yeah. And so if your trials are on a horseback, do you have to own your own horse and bring your own horse to these events or do they provide horses or how, how does that work? Um, usually they do not provide horses. If you're going to a big event, like a national event, yes, there is usually somebody there that will rent horses out to people. Um, I am very fortunate that I have a group of friends that own horses. Um, I share a horse with somebody personally, but um, you can manage. You can manage doing horseback trials by borrowing, or you can even, you have an option to walk. There, There is a rule where in any horseback trial, you can have a walking handler and everybody has to stay at the walking handler's pace. Um, but you're at a disadvantage because when you handle a dog off a horseback, you're higher up, the dog can see you, and they are more likely to range a little wider and run a little bigger and hmm. go for those objectives that are a little further out. Um, when you're on foot, the dog tends to want to stay a little closer to keep an eye on you. Um, so horseback handling is helpful. Even if you're not going to compete in horseback handling, it's helpful to get them to understand that they can be working away from you. Um, we like a dog in general to be a little bit more independent in field trials. So, yeah, yeah, yeah the horse thing does, it, it's an advantage for sure. Right. Do you find that the they, the dogs sort of accept the horses relatively easily? They don't need to get used to them being around? Do they just 
Maybe uh, if they're used to running alongside a quad bike, it's pretty much the same thing? Or No, it depends on the dog. I've had some dogs who can't figure out where you are in the beginning. They they don't know to look up. <laughs> some dogs, they just get it right away. They see you. They understand. They just go. The horse doesn't bother them. I've seen puppies that are jumping on the horse's tail and just doing very silly things. Um, the field trial horses are very used to dogs, so it's it's a little bit dangerous but um you know they they are careful most of these horses that are that are used for field trials um so it it really just depends on the dog and i i you know with my puppies i do bring them around horses when they're young so they're used to it but um i've seen older dogs that have never been run off a horseback before just take to it right like that so i it just depends right is there, is there a particular type of horse which is good for doing field trials yes. with a sort of solid, stable. Yes, um, we use walking horses, and, and that's because their gait is very smooth. Um, if you ride something like a quarter horse, you are going to get beat up and not enjoy yourself. <laughs> right. So, walking horses with the proper gait is is very very nice, especially for riding all day. Um, but yeah, other than that, yes, they do have to have a very, you know, I like geldings. Um, but they have to have a nice, calm temperament. They have to be used to gunfire uh, noises and just they have to just have a very solid temperament. Um, and they, right. they, they do. So in between when you're not running your dog and you're kind of waiting at someone else who's running their dog, what is everybody else doing? What's the gallery doing? Are they sort of sitting on their horses in a group with their dogs attached to their horses somehow? Or do they get off their horses? And what, what's everyone else doing? Um, so a gallery would come out without dogs. Um, they, they have to stay behind the judges and they're there to, to watch the performance. Um, the dogs are in camp just waiting for their turn. They're either in their box or we have something called a chain gang, um, or they're staked out. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Um, but basically, you know, they're just, they're, they're just chained out and they're waiting for their turn and they're in camp basically. Right. So there's not much moving around to fresh ground. No. Or does everyone have to change where the camp is to follow? No, no, no. Oh, yeah. No, no. I see what you're saying. No, we're we're all in one camp uh, and there's a course that's set up and everybody runs that same course. Right. And so the birds, are there the same number of birds for each dog? Yes. Or... yes. Right. Right. So typically what would happen is you would start, I don't know, um, let's say you put 20 birds out in the beginning, the first, the first group of dogs would go, we run in braces. So there'd be two dogs running at the same time, two dogs, two handlers, two judges, and then the gallery behind the judges. Um, handlers are also allowed to have what's called a scout and that's a helper. So the helper would keep an eye on the dog, would, would tell the handler, Oh, the dog, you know, is over there at two o'clock or, you know, or whatever. If would, you, would that be by radio or would they be sort of shouting no, at the handler? No, they, they would be shouting or waving right. or doing something like that. Um, if the dog had bird work, they would help hold the handler's horse. They would help maybe water the dog, help cast the dog off after they've finished their bird work. So the scout's job is basically to assist the handler and to keep an eye on the dog so the dog doesn't get lost. Um, so that would be the group that would be out in the field at one time. Um, and the judges are they also on horseback as well or yes yes even in a walking trial like judges are typically on horseback occasionally you get judges that walk but that's a lot of walking <laughs> mm. it's usually trials are usually saturday and sunday so if they're walking you know eight hours a day that's that's a lot um most judges would prefer to to ride um yeah Back to the birds, though, um, after that, after the first brace goes, there would be bird planters that follow and they would replenish the birds that were worked by the dog. So if, if there were four finds on the course, they would put four more, four more birds down and they keep doing that until the stake ends. And the birds are not in launches or they're not dizzy. They're just there kind of hiding in some grass. Is that? Yes, um, they are usually dizzied a little bit just so they're not all over the place and we have a general idea you know they'll stay in the course um but yeah they are typically dizzied but not dizzy to the point that they're unconscious or anything like that right 
Yeah. So there's kind of an attempt to sort of standardize it for each dog. So that each dog has the same number of birds in roughly the same places for the yes. run. Yes. 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 Right. And you said this takes an hour. So this that each dog's running. Um. Oh, a normal weekend. Right? A normal weekend trial would be thirty minutes. Uh, right. per brace uh like i said a big event like a national would be an hour if if i had pointers um they have three hour stakes but wow. that's yeah that that is a pointer thing but the typical american kennel club weekend field trial is a 30 minute stake okay folks it's time for a whistle pause a whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. Right, so there can't be much time to run many dogs if each dog's having half an hour run, or even an hour run if it's the national. Uh, Our nationals are usually, they take about a week complete oh right wow mm-hmm. that's a huge event then yes yes absolutely and i i also didn't mention that um younger dogs such as our puppy stakes they are only expected to run about 15 15 or 20 minutes so when i when i talk about 30 minutes these are for adult steady broke dogs right and what age would puppies be up to uh puppies would be up to six uh 15 months um, and then we have kind of an in-between stage called Derby, and they can run up to 24 months. They would expect a little bit more handling and uh, better board work, but they don't have to be completely trained. And that would be what you would call a Derby dog. So so basically you have two dogs at a time come out and they're running a brace and you've got the judges who are trying to look at both dogs at once or is each because you said there's two judges each judge looking at, at one particular dog or are they both looking at both dogs um they would they usually will look at one dog if the dogs happen to be sort of together they'll look at both dogs but they will take one dog or another um we have collars on our dogs to differentiate they call it top or bottom um so one would wear a red collar that would be top the other one would wear a yellow collar. That would be bottom. Um, so judges will usually take, I'll take all the top dogs or I'll take all the bottom dogs. They may switch. Right. They may switch in the middle of their stake. Um, but yeah, typically they will take one dog and, and the dogs will often get split up if they have bird work, then you're on different parts of the course. So, Right. And so each dog kind of does their half an hour or whatever it is amount. And that's mm-hmm. the end of their run. Mm-hmm. And then, we kind of progress through everybody that's entered. And what happens then? Do you get called back for a second run or is the sort of award based just on that half an hour performance or it how would does that work? It would depend. Um, so sometimes if it's a retrieving stake, so not all of our field trial stakes ask for a retrieve, even if you have a retrieving breed. Um, so when we do our bird work on the back course, uh, we use a pop gun, no birds are shot. They just need to demonstrate their steadiness. If it's a retrieving stake, uh, most typically there would be a callback for a retrieve. So the judges would call the the best four or five dogs 
and we would have a setup with a, another bird planted. The dog would demonstrate their steadiness. The bird would, there would be two gunners out there. The handler does not shoot their own birds. There are assigned gunners. Bird would be shot and the dog would need to demonstrate a retrieve to hand. And if they mess up in that portion of their bird work, they could get tossed out of the whole thing and lose their placement completely. Um, but they do, they would need to demonstrate that retrieve in a retrieving stake. Right. Not all stakes are retrieving. If, if they demonstrate that retrieve, is is that sort of a pass or fail thing? Is it sort of like you did the retrieve and it was good, it was to hand, that's it? Or is it sort of that was more stylish retrieve, I'll give you a few more, more extra points? Or is it very much a sort of it's yes or no thing? It, yeah, it's pass or fail. And right. actually, the, the AKC right now, we are discussing, there are only four breeds right now that need to have a retrieve in order to finish a field championship. Weimaraners are one of them. Um, they are talking right now with changing it to instead of retrieving points that will apply to your field championship, um, they're trying to give out credits instead. Um, so this will be a change for us in how how we earn our field championship points. Um, it, it actually makes it less stringent as far as the retrieve goes because you could you could place in a in a stake and get a retrieving credit that would that would apply to your field championship. Whereas before you had to win and get a retrieving win and points in order to finish your field championship. So right. this is a change See, being discussed right now. I, I think, I think we're going in that direction. So you can really see how important the, the hunting side of things is. It's almost as if, you know, no one's even going to see a retrieve if you're not very good at hunting, because you won't even get as far as doing the retrieve at the end. You're yes. thrown out before then. Is that, that's right, that's yeah. yes that's right and you know the versatile hunting breeds i guess what you call hprs in akc were classified as a pointing breed there is no such thing as a versatile breed so that's why we don't do tracking or well weimariners have a, a water retrieve component that they have to do but it's very much focused on the pointing side whereas something like navda is you know a lot more versatile breed um you know, specific. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that means that you must put a lot of emphasis in your training on hunting and on, on hunting ability. So yes. that was one thing I wanted to talk with you a bit about. Like how do you go about beginning all of that? So with puppies, what's the very first things that you'd be doing with them to encourage that hunting? Um, so with a young puppy, what I'll usually do is I will, and I'll start this as early as six or eight weeks. Um, you know, if I, if I bred the litter, I will start them early. If I purchase a dog from somebody else at, you know, at eight weeks old, I'll start introducing them to birds. Um, I'll buy a small, maybe quail or something, you know, not intimidating and just let them, I'll, I'll throw it out in the field somewhere they can probably see it and let them chase them and do whatever they want. The idea with a puppy is to really just make birds fun for them. And so we're just exposing them when they're young to to those things to birds, um, and I would do this maybe once a week with the puppies, and it's it's very casual. It's very there's nothing they can do wrong. It doesn't matter if they point them. It doesn't matter if they pick them up. It doesn't matter if they maul them. Whatever. All I want out of little puppies is that they think birds are fun. Eventually, they're going to start to point. Um, as they get older and stronger, I'm going to start to look for birds that can fly better and get away from the from the dog. And what ends up happening is they learn that bird basically teaches them. I hmm. can't catch them anymore. They're flying off. You know, I'm going to try something else. Usually they're going to try to point. When they get to that point where they've suddenly clicked over to pointing depending on their age and what, what they've been conditioned to. Cause I also start some of the gun conditioning. I might mm -hmm. shoot, I would shoot that bird for them if they point. So what I'm going for there is the dog understands if I point, then I'm going to get what I want out of this. So they start right. learning I, to cooperate with you. It's who not does the all flushing? Of, um, it could be, it might be the dog. Uh, it, it might be a wild flush. It might be me. Right. In the early stages, I don't care. All I want is to see the dog pointing and for the dog to understand if they point, they're going to get what they want. 
and they start, you know, like I said, they start cooperating with you because they, in the, you know, initially with a the puppy, they're just, they're just having a ball. They're just doing whatever they want, but they start seeing you as a team member when you start shooting those birds. Right. Um, and how old would they be at this age? Just to give people a rough mm, point of reference. Probably about six months. It, it would depend on the dog. Um, I have Weimaraners. They're slow maturers. Um, they don't have as much point as other breeds. So it, it might be longer. Um, but again, and the caution there is they have to be conditioned to the gun and loud noises at that point. Cause of course you don't want to scare them during the scenario and scare them off of birds that, that can cause a lot of problems. Um, but if they've, if they're used to all that and you're shooting birds for them when they're a juvenile dog, they will start pointing. Hmm. So it strikes me that you must need a ready supply of birds to be able to do this. Yes. And they have to fly. So right. we, we, we actually purchase birds. Um, I use a lot of pigeons. So pigeons have a very strong s- smell. Um, they tend to fly very well. And we can often trap our own birds in the city. And they are very, very flighty. They don't want people near them. They don't want dogs near them. And that is a perfect bird. All right. So you use urban pigeons. Yes. Right. Yes. How um, do you trap urban pigeons? Um, you can buy a bird trap and just put a little feed in there and the, the birds will walk in. Or you can actually go in the middle of the night, take a net and just net them. It's right. a lot of work. <laughs> there it are, does sound like it. Yes. I have talked to exterminators that will sell birds. <laughs> um <laughs> That's a great source. Um, people, some people will raise their own birds and teach their pigeons to home. So to home, yeah, yeah. So homing pigeons will will go always go back to their cage, um, and you fly them so that they're they're exercised and th- they will fly. But they're more used to people and they're more used to dogs, and they tend to allow a dog to get closer to them. So, but you can reuse them. So there, there's some good in that. So I usually use a combination of both depending on where the dog is in their training. But my favorite by far are the feral pigeons because they just will not, you're not going to ever get into a situation where the dog is catching birds. And if you have a dog that catches too many birds, they're not going to point anymore. There's no reason to. They've, they got the reward without doing what you want. So feral birds are key to the way I train. Um, other people do other things, but you know, I, I like, I like it as natural as possible. I'm out of the equation. The bird is, the bird is giving the dog the repercussions, whatever the dog decides to do. And it's my job to either reward that or, you know, if they keep chasing and they never catch a bird and they have to do it a hundred times in order to learn to point, well, that's okay. But it's just going to take as long as it takes. So basically, they just lose the bird over and over again if they right. don't point. And when they right. do the, point, you you reinforce that by shooting the bird, and they get that as the positive reinforcement for exactly pointing. Exactly, every dog is going to get tired of chasing if they have a chase that never ends in a reward. They'll just stop. They're going to think of some other way to try to get the bird, and that's when you usually see the dog starting to point. I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. 
So, if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it, and to post it on social media, and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well. I hope you can check out some of my courses, my online platform, ForceFreeGundog.com, and you can also check out my book. Force Free Gundog Training and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. And, and what about ground game? I don't know what sort of ground game you have, but the, the birds flying and teaching the dog they disappear idea seems to work well when the birds fly off. But when you've got something like ground game, the chase can be so exciting that it can be quite difficult to do anything about that. Uh, so, um, you mean like rabbits and squirrels? Yeah, hares yes. or... Yeah. Um, when they're young, I, I don't really discourage it too much. I try to take them somewhere where we're not going to run into too many of those things. Um, right. And you've got snakes as well, I guess. But Yes, we do have snakes. Um, that's another reason why we don't train in the summer. Actually, it's a big reason why we don't train in the summer because we have snakes here and it's dangerous and aversion training is is not fun. <laughs> it's mm. necessary. It's not fun. And I, we don't do it with puppies. So it's just better to not train. It's not worth it. Yeah, it's just not worth it. But with a puppy, I you know, if they're chasing bunnies or whatever, I just ignore it. It's not what I want, but I just ignore it. They they learn later. And the more birds you give them the the they eventually they just learn what's the rewarding game. Yeah, that's they, what I was thinking. Yeah. They probably just get so addicted to the whole bird where's the bird where's the bird mm-hmm. idea that they just stop being so focused on the ground game. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And you know, we have other birds out there, you know, little tweety birds or ravens or whatever is out there and they don't pay attention to them anymore. They do when they're young, but they eventually learn to, you know, all the action is with the game birds. So it, it works itself out. Right. Yeah. So at this point, you're not running, you're not encouraging the dog to actually run. I'm just going back to your sort of six month old puppy that you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So at what point would you, you know, try and encourage the dog to be running and, and finding and looking for the birds rather than just setting up a bird that you come across from a few meters away? Uh, well, you know, initially we, we help the dogs by making it easy for them to find the birds. But as they get better and they get better fast, we start planting the birds in strategic places. We keep, you know, pay attention to the wind direction. We pay attention to where wild birds would likely be. And we try to simulate that. So I live in Los Angeles where it's a lot of desert terrain. We have chucker here. Um they tend to stay in the rock piles up high. So I would plant pigeons in those type of locations. I would plant them further and further out. So they have to start reaching, reaching out further and further to find the game. So I'm not going to make it easy for them as I did when I was first introducing uh, a puppy to a bird. They're just, they just have to work harder and harder as they start learning. Um, so that's how we start. We start teaching them to range out. And presumably it's also about how densely concentrated the birds are. So if you wanted to make it easy, you could have quite quite a heavy concentration of birds. And if you wanted to make it difficult or, you know, to really um, see if they were able to keep going without a find for a while, then you could put just a couple of birds out. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Uh, we don't we don't tend to use a lot of birds in general. Um, I like to stop when they are amped up, they want more, they did something right, and I'll stop it might only be one or two contacts with a bird and it's very hard and it takes a lot of discipline because I just drove an hour and a half from the city to put my dogs <laughs> on birds and we're done in 20 minutes. Um, right. But if you do it too much, they could get bored. They, they learn that it's too easy, you know? So I try to stop when the fire is burning bright and they want more, as long as they've done it right. The last thing they remember is what they did right. That's all I want. Right. So, so in do, training, I, you'd be doing this with, with each dog one at a time. So you'd be sort of yes. getting a dog out of the car. They'd have a find or you'd decide that was enough for them. And then they go back in the car, you get another dog out and yes. it'd be their training session. And Right. Yep. Um, now that changes when I start getting into formal training, um, which I guess we're segging. I don't know if you're ready to seg into that, but um, 
when they're a little bit older, more mature, and we want to start teaching them bird manners, that changes. I start to train with a group. And this is when I put a check cord on the dog and I'm teaching them to be steady. Um, that's a lot of the foundation for the steadiness work I do. And it's all group based. And we keep. So when you say group based, you mean lo- lo- other people are training their dogs as well, or just you've yes. got m- many dogs out at once that are yours? Or- no, no. We've got many people with. So the perfect scenario for me would be maybe three dogs with three handlers. We all have our dogs on a long line or what we call a check cord. We've got birds in a field and we're not spreading them all over the place because now we're not talking about teaching them to run or hunt. We're teaching them the bird manners. And a dog would be maybe 15 to 24 months, something like that. They're they're a little bit more mature. They've, they've had all the introductory bird stuff. They love birds. Um, you know, we're ready to, to kind of uh, little put a little bit of pressure on them, I guess. So in a group scenario, we'll take turns having the dog point a bird and the other people that are in that group will start teaching the honor or backing. Um, so right. that foundation work, we spend a lot of time doing that and it's a lot of repetition. It's a lot of control. Um, it's, having the dog work close to you because they have to learn how to do it correctly when they're close before you even try to, you know, get them further out and have them maintain their manners. Um, so that would be a good three months or longer that we'll spend doing that about three times a week. Right. Oh, I guess we missed that bit out when you were talking about the dogs running as brace as a brace, what would happen? So basically you're saying that when one dog finds the bird, the other dog running in the brace would have to honor the dog that found the bird. Is that right? Yes. If they're in the vicinity and they see the other the other dog, yes, they will need to honor the other dog. Right. Do you want to just explain a little bit more about what that's about? Because I think in the in UK, HPRs are not expected to honor like they run individually oh. and they don't run in braces and okay. so just in case anyone's perplexed about what that means. Okay. Um so when we're in braces, there's of course two dogs out. If a dog is on point and another dog comes across that situation, they have to, what we call honor or back the dog, meaning that they have to stop and they have to stand there and not move, stay basically until the whole bird sequence is over. So while the other dog has the bird shot for them and the other dog would say in this scenario be retrieving, um, they would have to stay behind and watch the whole thing. They cannot see, find the other dog on point and get up next to them and point the same bird or get in front of the other dog. They have to hold back. It's the pointing dog's bird. So right. it does take a lot of self-control on the dog's part. <laughs> but we start, and a lot of people train that after. They get the whole steadiness thing first and then they teach the dog to honor. I like to teach the whole scenario at the same time. While we're teaching the bird manners, that's why I like the group because they are learning to stay calm and stay still watching another dog. And the idea there is they're not getting any bird scent. They don't, they're not in the scent cone. They just need to stay calm. And a lot of the steadiness work is really about the dog staying calm and in the right mental state to learn. So we're always thinking about keeping the dog calm. They can't be all crazy. So with the backing dog, be expected to actually point or would they just be expected to stand there and be calm and still they would not be so expected. would they have to expected to have that intensity no. or they wouldn't be expected to have that no okay. they would not be expected to have that intensity um they theoretically really shouldn't be i mean if they come across the other dog and they're both in the scent cone the backing dog may be pointing but if they're coming into that dog in any other direction they're not going to have the benefit of the scent and it's it's purely obedience Right. So it's like a dog pointing becomes a cue to stand. Yes. And not try and steal that dog's bird. Exactly. Um, And what will happen to the way I train, the dog, the backing dog starts learning the scenario. So if they see people around like trying to flush a bird, a lot of these dogs, they will back a situation. They'll Or they'll see somebody off a horse. Um, They'll start to recognize that as somebody's out there doing some kind of bird work. I need to stop. They will also learn to do that if they hear um, a shot. 
a lot of dogs will learn to stop because that could be a stop to flush situation. They may not even see the scenario happening, but they know that that's a cue to stop. And that just comes from the training, you know, the repetition of training. And at what point would the backing dog be expected to move? So say the handler goes in and flushes the bird, which is shot, and then the dog that's pointing retrieves it. What, at what stage would the back, backing dog just stands there the whole time through yes. all of that? Or, yes. Right. Um, so when the, when the pointing dog handler is done with their sequence, they go to their dog, they send the dog on. At that same time, you would be allowed to take your backing dog and send it on for more hunting. So it, it needs right. to stand through the whole sequence. Right. And I might write as well that when dogs point in the US, that they're not, it would be marked down if the dog were to move again off that point. So once they come onto a point, they're not supposed to kind of road in on the bird or relocate. Um, Is that right? Or uh, Yes and no. <laughs> okay. Um, so there are situations where a dog will point and you can't find the bird. Um, you can ask a judge you know, can I relocate my dog? The judge will say yes. And you will verbally or physically, usually a tap on the head or something. There's some kind of cue um, where you tell the dog, okay, you can relocate and the dog will relocate. That's fine. There are other situations where the dog is on point way ahead of you. Maybe the bird's running. You you can't see what's happening. Um, and that dog will move with the bird. That's usually okay. Some judges don't like it. Um, I think it's okay to, for the dog to do that. You haven't called point. You haven't gotten up to the dog. You haven't gotten off your horse. You haven't started the bird work sequence. And as long as the dog is still working the bird, I think it's okay for that dog to creep in. Um, right. We, we so don't... you have to call point, yes. did you say? So you... Yes. Right. Yes. Um. However, there are dogs that learn, especially because we don't use wild game in our training usually. You know, the bird's not even moving and the dog is just trying to get closer and closer and closer and they want to see the bird. In that situation, there would probably be a little a bit of a demerit there from the judge's opinion. You, would, you wouldn't be thrown out or anything, but it, it's not good. And that is something that is another reason why I like the feral birds, because they're not going to allow a dog to crowd, crowd them. And a lot of dogs end up, they really like to see the bird. So. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's the dogs behind and the dog can tell that there's other dogs behind them and that makes them want to get closer in case yes. the dogs behind them are going to steal their bird. And... Oh, yes, yes. There's that. That's a lot of pressure for them. So um, hopefully it's all taken care of in training, but it, it does happen in trials. Right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I wanted to also talk about the controversial subject of blue Weimaraners a bit. Okay. Um, because I know I read your Facebook post on your page in May. So I kind of got some sort of idea of this, but I'm going to try and tell me if I'm wrong with any of this. And I'm going to ask you questions as well. So, okay. but actually, firstly, I wondered if you could just tell us about Otto, where you got him from, how, because I think he's a return to you, wasn't he? So if you could just tell us about him to begin with, and we can see you know, what an incredible dog he is. And then we get some sort of backstory in all of this, I think. Okay. Um, so Otto was a dog that I, I, I didn't breed him on paper. There were, he was bred by, um, I sold a puppy to a family in Arizona and they bred, they bred the slitter. I ended up with, I, at about two years old, I got Otto back. Um, so basically I was acting as a breeder, but anyways, he came to me with, a little bit of bird foundation work as a puppy, but he had really never lived in a house. He hadn't been really well socialized. He had a lot of things against him. Um, so what I did with him when I got him, I I, I was planning on placing him. I, I wasn't really prepared for a male to come into the house. Um, you know, I, I, I just didn't think that he really had it. Uh, I thought it was too late, basically. But what I did with him is I took him hunting the first year I had him, and we really established a bond by doing that. It was it was actually a terrible year for birds here in California. We we were in a drought. We there were no birds around, but he learned to cooperate with me, and we really formed a bond by doing that. So I decided to train him, and I I took a long time training him. I spent 
a good year, year and a half. I took my time. I laid all the foundation work on him using the check cord that I talked about with a, a group of people. And he ended up being a very nice dog. He finished his field championship and amateur field championship within a year. Um, we have to compete with all breeds. So, you know, he was, wow. he was running with Britney's and German Shepherd partners and all that. Um, wow. And then he won the national. So he became a national so just field like, champion last year. I think we have to kind of put that in perspective a little bit. So tell, tell us a little bit about what is involved in winning the national. What do you have to go through to get there in the first place? How many other dogs have you run against in order to be there? And to give us some of that. Okay. Um, so the national is a pretty big event and this it's Weimariner only. Uh, he was competing with about 19 other dogs. So, and, and this was an hour stake. And we were we had to go to Oklahoma, so that that was actually new terrain for him, which which was a little bit of a challenge, but you know he managed. Um, so yeah, the difference with nationals is it, it is just against other Weimariners, whereas when we're competing locally here, it's all breeds, so it's just a different a different flavor kind of thing. Does that answer your question? Right. Yeah. So, are there heats, or do you? How do you get to? Can anyone enter? Oh the yes, you... Uh, you have to either be a field champion already, or have. I think it's a first place win in a gun dog stake in order to qualify. So there, there are qualifications in order to run in the first place. Right. Yeah. Right. So basically, Otto was really, really successful. He as a dog, he has although been he had very a, good. not an ideal start. Yeah, yeah, he's he's been very good to me. <laughs> and what we missed out in all of this is that Otto is blue. Yes, uh, Otto is a blue Weimariner, and uh, in the United States, the color is a disqualifying fault, and the color is not allowed anywhere else. So he is the first blue Weimariner to have a field champion, amateur field champion, national. That, that those are all firsts for for blue wine. So he's made some history, I guess. Um, but you know, the color to me is, it's just a color to me. The dog either performs or it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they always say there's no such thing as a, as a bad color on a good dog, don't they? Some I people do. Yeah, I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some people do. <laughs> it, it actually caused a lot of controversy in the club and there were people that were angry and you know, all that, you know, the politics, but um, like I said, when it really comes down to it, I would have been just as proud if he were gray, you know, but he is a blue Weimariner and I guess that makes it a little bit more special because he was, you know, he did some firsts. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because I think that blue Weimariners probably have this reputation, at least in the UK, for being, you know, backyard bred and, you know, not desirable and yes. coming from not very reputable breeders. And so they're kind of tarnished with all of that. And that's Stuff that's already. Yeah, and that's that's actually fair. Um because of the history of the Blue Weimariner in the US, you know, where we had a lot of controversy about it since the 70s. People were trying to get the color, you know, completely out of the standard and there was just a lot of political infighting over it and it became a disqualifying fault in the 70s. Well, it, that meant that they were really being bred by backyard breeders and people that were trying to take advantage of the color because they were breeding a disqualifying fault. Um, so there is just, it, it's true. There, there are a lot of blue wine runners that just aren't well bred. Um, and if, if there are people listening that want a blue wine runner, you have to be very, very careful about where you're going to get your dog from because it, it's just the, the, well-bred wine, blue wines, they're just not out there. There are very few out there. Let me put it that way. So um, it, it's a little bit justified. I mean, in terms of what people think about blues as a whole, it's not completely true on an individual basis, but as a whole, the blue wine marina has suffered from breeders that are really trying to take advantage of the color. And it is a, it's a pretty a color. Runner, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, it is pretty. But they're still ped a pedigree by runner. They're still registered with the AKC. They're still oh yes, yeah. So yeah. The only thing I so cannot... there's some people who say they're not Weimaraners and there must be some other breed of dog that's got in there somewhere and all that sort of thing. 
Oh gosh. Yeah, no. Um, you know, my blue litters have always had grays in them because I am not breeding only for color. Um, so they're the same. It really, he just happens to be blue. I, there were graves litter mates in that litter and it, it, you know, if I had ended up with a gray one, it, it could have been a gray one. Um, but they are AKC registered. They're allowed to do everything except show. And I don't, you know, showing's not really my thing. So that's okay. <laughs> he's not a show. Even if you were a gray, he's not a show dog. He's, he's not built that way. But what you've done is quite interesting because I think you've brought this sort of conflict. This sort of a sort of... Yes, I have. Because you've got this, this blue Weimaraner that is really high achieving and ran and won the national field championship in, in 2018. And and he's blue. And so you've kind of like all these people who want to think that these are, you know, bred by, you know, they're not very good dogs and who would want one of those and they're not bred by reputable people. And, you know, then to have a blue Weimaraner win the national field championship is just it creates a lot of conflict for people. I don't think people oh, know what to do with that. Yes. Um, it, like I said, it did cause a lot of controversy in the club and <clears throat> I actually don't know what the resolution will be because there was a complaint filed with the WCA that he was allowed to enter, which he was allowed to enter, but they're trying to change the rules so that uh, blues and other dogs with disqualifying faults, which would also include long hairs for us in the U S um, oh, right. they are, they're trying to put something in there that they cannot compete in a WCA event. Now, the club has voted on this. The majority of the membership doesn't agree, but there has been no resolution to it. So I I actually don't know if I'm going to nationals this year, or I don't know if I'm competing with Otto again this year because I don't know if he's going to be allowed to run or not. Um, right. He was and we not... should say this is all... It's, it's so crazy when in the same litter you could have grey and blue dogs. And so... And yet the gray dogs would be allowed to run then if this comes into being and the yes. blue dogs might not be, which is just seems insane. It is kind of weird, <laughs> but there is definitely a, it, like you said, it caused a lot of conflict and it made a lot of people upset. Um, he, they, they would not put his, his picture on the magazine cover um, for his national one. He also ended up being the number one field Weimaraner for 2018 he didn't get recognition from the club for that. I mean, the the points and the it stands, his placement stands, but he was not allowed to be on the magazine because they don't want to promote disqualifying faults. Right. So it I think they like to pretend that these blues aren't doing anything or they're just, you know, if we don't publish the picture, maybe he doesn't exist. But um I I, I think it's a minority of the Weimaraner people that think feel that way but there is definitely a lot of conflict and upset people over him. it does seem to me like i mean a dog is much more than what they look like they're also what's on the inside of what's under the bonnet and the sort of prioritizing the color of the dog over what the dog can actually do seems crazy because i mean you wrote on your facebook post something about you quoted the um, u.s standard which says above all the dog's confirmation must indicate the ability to work with great speed and endurance mm -hmm. in the field and the uk standard even goes one step further and says hunting ability of paramount concern ah. and yet we're giving dogs the these awards for just running around a show ring they're not hunting anything they're just trotting by their owner's sides backwards and forwards in a show ring and right, we're right. giving them awards and promoting them for being able to do that when they haven't proven that they can work in the field at all so they're not fulfilling the working function and the working part of the breed oh standard. yes i and know yet, yes then we've got dogs like otto who who are fulfilling the working part of the breed standard <laughs> but might not look like the physical side of the breed standard right. but we've decided that we're going to write them off so yeah, I, it seems I, to be really I don't confused. <laughs> I don't understand it yeah. either. I mean, the blue color, it's its a dominant trait. Um, you know, he sired a litter recently. He had gray puppies in that litter because uh, the, you know, the dam was gray. So you can, if you don't like it, it's very easy control. It's not recessive. It's dominant. What you see is what you get. So if you wanted to breed to Otto just because of his field ability, you could certainly do that and not continue on with the blues if that's your personal preference. Um, so there's, there really shouldn't be any fear of the color, in my opinion. It, it's, to me, in our standard, it's a disqualifying fault, but to me, it's very minor. You can get rid of it. You don't have to have blues. 
what does it matter? It's just a color. But right. other people don't see it that way. So I, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> so just to make sure that, that people understand. So when you say that it's dominant and what you see is what you get, you, you mean that the gray vine runners aren't carrying the blue gene? Correct. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's right. correct. So, so if you have one of these litters where you have some blues and some grays in the same litter, those gray puppies would not be carrying a blue gene. And they, if they're bred to another gray dog, there would not be any blue that's puppies. Right. You will never, the there will carry. never be any surprises right. later. You have gotten, if you see a gray dog, there is no possibility there would ever be a blue from that dog ever, no matter how many generations down the blue is gone. So it, like I said, it's very easy to control that, you know, unlike maybe the long hair. I mean, I know we have a, te- a DNA test for that now, but before that, you know, they may pop up unexpectedly and it's happened. And, you know, that may be a basis maybe for disqualifying. And that makes a little bit more sense to me because, you know, if you couldn't control the gene or whatever, but in this, that's not the case with the blues. It's quite the opposite. So. So from my eyes, it would make sense to be using Otto as a stud because he has this incredible ability in the field and you can control what color the puppies are by what color the bitch is. So Mm -hmm. that kind of seems to be perfect to me. Yes. Well, there were resulting blue puppies. um, So you would have to deal with if you were trying to, you know, if you didn't want the blues, you would have to do some, you know, do something with those. But yes, you could very easily eliminate it. Right. Yeah. He had actually, he sired a litter of 14 recently. Um, wow. We, we had a lot of blues in the litter. There were actually nine blues and five, five grays in that litter. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just strikes me as like, if the breed as a whole globally were doing, you know, if it, if it was doing really, really well in the field and, you know, the majority of Vimer runners hunted excellently, worldwide mm-hmm. and it was just about getting the color right then i might be able to have some sympathy for the idea of not using the blues and using the grays but it, but when we have a kind of the opposite we have a hunting ability in a lot of vime runners is, is not very good and we really need an injection of great hunting ability into <laughs> the breed then it just seems to me to be silly to be prioritizing what they look like and writing off. Oh, I completely agree. Yes, <laughs> I completely yeah. agree. Um, I mean, surely we've got our priorities wrong. I mean, the I, dogs are yeah. what they are because of what they do, first and foremost, I think, anyway. But I, I, like. I do as well. This is the reason why I'm breeding the blues. And, you know, I, I started breeding blues with the understanding that there were going to be people that would be very upset over it because it's not part of the standard well it to me it's just that you happen to be able to see the blue thing whereas other Mm. traits that are not part of the standard for instance are maybe harder to see or identify but blues are very easy to pick on because i mean it's so obvious um but yeah i i don't i agree with you you know the if the dog has the hunting ability which is the most important thing that should be prioritized over the color and obviously yeah. I think that because that's the way I'm breeding, but, um, but it does upset a lot of people because they are very much, you know, well, the standard says this, the standard, the standard. I understand. But yeah, the standard also says hunting ability of paramount concern. And <laughs> yes. that's not really proven by 99% of dogs. Uh, in Australia, yes. Really. It's quite the shame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like the majority of people breeding are really breeding for pet or for show mm-hmm. purposes. And it's only a very, very small minority of people that are breeding purely for field work. And then there are some people who claim they're building, they're, they're breeding for dual purpose vine runners. But I think that it's kind of hard to breed for dual purpose, truly for dual, dual, dual purpose. Um, because if you prioritize physically what they look like and you end up sacrificing you know, yes. It's not going to be necessarily the dog that is has the most the best working ability. Right. So right. And it, it, we're it not in go, a position where it would go both ways, right? That that dog will probably not be the best show dog. So I my, exactly my first Weimariner was actually a dual champion, um, and I would consider him a field dog. Like we struggled through the show ring. He we got it. He was a field champion first, um, you know, and then he was he was smaller. He was just built a little differently and we had to find the right judges, you know, all that sort of things. But, um, 
we got the dual championship and I mean, I'm, I'm proud of him and all that, but um, I would say Otto is probably a better dog than him in the field. He, you know, 20 years have passed and I think the dogs in general have gotten better, but um, it, it is hard. I mean, I've, I've done both sides and to try to get everything in one dog is very difficult. So, right. well, it's good to hear that Otto's being used at stud and his genes are, you know, out there. Yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we hope we can. We hope his uh, progeny can can prove something there too. But we'll see. They're still very young. So have you have you got any? Have you kept any yourself of his? Puppies uh, or no, I've got. There are four that are here in California. I co-own one of them. Um, and I've got another one with a very, very good friend who field trials. So they're, they're in great, they're all in hunting homes. So I'm crossing my fingers that, um, that they'll do good, but right. we'll see. They're, How old are they? Uh, they're just six months old. Right. Yeah. They're quite young. Quite young. Right. But we'll, we'll, we'll start going been... with the training. So. <laughs> It's been brilliant to talk to you, Anne, and thanks so much for, for coming on the show today. It's been excellent to have you, so thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been really interesting, and I'm sure it's like a whole new world to most people listening, particularly if they're in the UK and they've got no idea about you know American field trials. It's probably, whoa. And meanwhile, we do have some American listeners, and they're probably like, whoa, this is so much more relevant to me than everything else oh, I've been listening okay. to on this podcast oh, until excellent. now. So that's good as well. Um, yeah, so thanks so much for coming on the show and bringing us some new interesting perspectives. Absolutely. Um, it was fun. Thank you for having me. Holiday 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 Holiday